Yeah, it's fantastic to be with you guys. I'm really enjoying this morning, and I always love uh, driving into Stellenbosch, of course, as Joe and I drove uh, through. Just you just live in paradise, basically. We just mustn't miss it up. We've got to build a better society so that we can uh, keep living in this paradise and keep sharing in this paradise. So uh, this morning, really, I'm kind of laying a little bit of a foundation, not only in terms of Scripture, but also just a little bit of my own story as we kind of move into this time of prayer and fasting and then Wednesday evening actually praying for one another to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I've, I've called this message the Holy Spirit and boldness because our seeking of things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit are not kind of in a vacuum. It's a weird thing that's happened where you're just kind of hoping for the Holy Spirit or asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a kind of, uh, in a kind of vacuum. What we see in Scripture is that the Spirit of God is poured out upon us for a purpose. Now, there are individual and personal benefits, of course, in an encounter with the Holy Spirit. But the idea that it's just kind of some kind of thing in a bubble, which is just between you and God, there is an aspect of the individual enjoyment of God, of course, but it's broader in its impact. So we'll see that as we we go through. I would suggest that in the last 50 years or so, a huge amount of effort um, has gone into teaching and demonstrating that Christianity is reasonable and commends itself to our minds as well as to our hearts. Uh, That was correct. There's a need to show that our faith wasn't just calling people to believe. Just don't worry about the, the questions, just believe. Uh, no, it's rooted in historical evidence. Our scriptures are based on rigorous scholarship. Our faith has got strong foundations. That shift, that emphasis, if you like, towards apologetics, in my opinion, is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's not, it's not a drift, it's a good thing, because the Bible tells us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The whole person is involved in our worship of God. If there's been a danger with that kind of trend, however, it's been in our desire to present ourselves as reasonable people with a coherent worldview. We've, we've downplayed um, what is obvious to every atheist Uh, which is that we believe in a God who we can't see, that uh, he interacts with us in real time, uh, that he works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that he answers our prayers, that he forgives our sins. We believe in a Jesus who was born of a virgin, who fed 5,000 people with a few bits and pieces of food, who actually literally walked on Water. We believe that angels and demons, heaven and hell are real, and that Jesus physically rose from the dead and is alive today. Now, you might not emphasize all of that stuff, but every atheist, as I once was, is obviously aware 
that no matter how reasonably you present your faith and no matter how it works in your life and all of that and it helps you in your marriage and all of those good things, you actually do believe in a God that you can't see. And you actually believe that he is interacting with you. And we actually have to be honest about that, of course, and say, yes, our faith is rooted in the supernatural, not in the natural. And any attempt to reduce Christianity to just a set of moral values or uh, life guidance principles is not really being honest with our non-Christian friends. C.S. Lewis put it like this, do not attempt to water Christianity down. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must, frankly, argue for supernaturalism from the very outset. So, yes, our lives are made better. Yes, Christianity works. Yes, you become an, a kinder person. You, your conscience is made aware of the needs of those around you and not just your own needs. You want to give. You want to love your neighbors. Yes, all of those good things are in place. But our faith is founded in the supernatural, not merely in the natural. This isn't just a get, it isn't just a self-help religion. So let's look at a few scriptures together to emphasize this and to lead us into this whole business of being filled with the Holy Spirit that we might have a boldness to share our faith confidently and accurately with the outside world, with the non-believing world around us. Matthew 4 verse 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Characteristic of Jesus' ministry, teaching, healing, teaching, healing. Orthodox Christianity, going through all Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And Peter reminds us in Acts chapter 10, Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Jesus himself promised his followers would experience the same kind of power. There wasn't really kind of a huge dip or change between Jesus' style of ministry, teaching, healing, teaching, healing, and his followers' style of ministry, teaching, healing, teaching, healing. Behold, he said, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Christian promise from Jesus' lips to his disciples. And again in Acts 1 verse 8, he says to them, you, because they're saying, but when's the end coming? He says, don't, you don't need to worry about the dates about when the end of the world is. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So we see this promise of power. We see Jesus modeling the kind of ministry. If, you've, if you were ever unfortunate enough to wear one of those what would Jesus do wristbands, the, que- the answer to the question what would Jesus do that we, we didn't really bring out was like cast it out. You know, rebuke it. Bring change. It's quite right to emphasize how God gives us grace to go through a storm. Nothing wrong with that. God gives us sufficient grace to carry us through a storm. But Jesus also rebukes storms and commands them to cease. So circumstances can change as well. And so it's both of these things operating at the same time. And Jesus promised them power. Much later, Paul, describing the life of a Christian minister in 1 Corinthians 2, wrote this, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's very clear the center of his message was about Jesus Christ and Jesus' death on a cross for their sins and his resurrection, of course, from the dead is all implied in that. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's a fascinating statement, isn't it? We would expect the inspired apostle to finish his phrase so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the wisdom of God. But he doesn't say that. And that's an interesting little twist he's given us there. Let me read it to you again. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, he's already told them, I'm preaching the cross. I'm preaching Christ crucified. The content is there. There's there's the content of the message, and then there's this power dynamic, just like Jesus' ministry as well but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, many westernized believers might think Paul is overstating his case, and that the emphasis is wrong. But actually, preaching with a demonstration of the Spirit's power is an accurate description of Jesus' ministry preaching with demonstrations of the Spirit's power. It's an accurate description of Peter's ministry, preaching with demonstrations of the Spirit's power. It's an accurate description of Philip's preaching as he went to, where was it, Samaria. And there was power. It wasn't just words coming. It wasn't in word only, but also in power. It was certainly true 
as Paul himself is saying here, and they wouldn't say, oh, no, that's not true. Paul, when you came, it was just very persuasive, and it was really, you know, excellent. We took lots of notes. It was true of Paul's ministry and Barnabas' ministry as well. It was certainly true of all the major Christian preachers in the New Testament, and therefore we infer from that, that it was true of every single one of them, that there was the content of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit at the same time. It's also true of every preacher through church history who has enjoyed what we might call revival. Revival, as I take it, is when thousands upon thousands of non-believers are born again, where they turn to Christ, have been converted and added to the churches. That's what I mean by revival. I don't mean just a series of meetings that are exciting and loud. When we look through church history and we see times of of outpouring of the Spirit, revival, great moments of conviction of sin, realization of the reality of heaven and hell and eternity opening, before us, and hundreds and thousands even being swept in to the kingdom of God, there are always these demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. And then, uh, again, if you read through church history, um, kind of an apologetic about that power. So uh, you pick a, you know, pick a season, the Moravians, or or Jonathan Edwards uh, writing his his kind of defense of these things, or, or, or Finney, or Wesley, or Whitfield. There were seasons of great outpouring, and, and this business of the cross being preached with passion, and the power of the Holy Spirit converting people, and there's always this element of controversy as well. Uh, those things go together. Paul is saying this was his normal experience. Now, we want to be persuasive. Of course we do. But this was Paul's normal experience. And as preachers, leaders, and if there's such a thing, I don't believe there is, as ordinary believers. There's no such thing as ordinary believers. But let's just for argument's sake say this. We also should know something of the power of the Holy Spirit to help us share our faith with others. You know, this kind of follows as, as night day or day night. And so I want to look in some measure at our own experience uh, of this verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Judea and Ju- Judea, Samaria, sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the gospel was going to go. How was the gospel going to go? Because the power of the Holy Spirit would, would exp- it'd spell it out. It would push it out. It would ring out through town after town after town after town and through generation after generation. So my experience was simply this. I, I, was, I was converted in my early 20s. I was a, a well-read and thoroughly convinced atheist wasn't someone who just followed the crowd or was easily swayed. And I knew that God didn't exist. As far as I could uh, attach meaning to those words, 
I would say, we know God. I mean, I suppose if you, if you really pushed me, I would say, well, it's, it's unlikely. Or, but actually, in reality, I genuinely believe that God didn't exist. I would, to such a degree that I would say, I know, we know God doesn't exist. And uh, the only contact I had with Christians is, uh, is when they came out. Not, not in that way. When they came out to do some kind of uh, evangelistic event, you know, in the street or, or uh, you know, in some other way where they would, they would kind of come out and do their thing. And it was usually not very impressive as well, by the way, but, uh, but that was just my own pride. Um, and, of course, earlier on uh, in England, where the schools that I went to anyway, you did have Christian hymns, and then there was a law change, and... Um, then it all became, you know, Morning is Broken by Cat Stevens, and it just, uh, you didn't do Christian hymns anymore. Um, and then, as I say, uh, in my early 20s, I just turned 20, a friend of mine suddenly appeared declaring that he had been born again. Uh, it's a phrase that <clears throat> I wasn't particularly familiar with, and that, but he had found the truth. Now, I knew that was wrong. He said he'd found the truth, by which he meant, truth with a big T. And I knew that that couldn't be right because we know there's no truth with a big T. There are little truths and they kind of, you know, the best you can do is try and draw a circle and uh, kind of gather all these little T truths into that circle and see how they interact with each other and all of that. But there's no overriding truth. There's no such thing as truth. Um, anyway, he, he wasn't... Um, as kind of intellectually driven as I was. So he just gave me a gospel of John. I said, what, what did they give you? They gave you something before, you know, this collapse happened in your life. Um, so <laughs> what, did they, what, did they, what did they give you? And he, he gave me a, a gospel of John. It's just a single little booklet um, of the gospel of John. And, and I read it. And I, the, the reason that I, I read it, which I wouldn't normally do, was to find the contradictions which I was certain would be in there, obviously. I mean, everyone knows that. So I would find the contradictions and the nonsense, and I would pretty, from his own text, prove to him that this was nonsense. Uh, I didn't think that would be difficult. I expected it to be easy. Um, and uh, as you can see, it didn't work. But, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, that was, that was where I was going. And that was genuinely where I was going. And so I was reading it very, very carefully. It's like a big trick was being played on me that I was unaware of. <clears throat> I, I was reading it very, very carefully to, to identify. And then when I couldn't find them, in, he gave me a copy of the NIV, <coughs> the old NIV. And I got a different translation and was comparing the two. I thought, maybe I can do it that way. Um, so I was comparing it with the good news, but I knew that was cheating anyway, so I didn't, that didn't last long. But anyway, over a period of some weeks, um, my careful reading, uh, this is cut a long story short, of the Gospel of John led me to actually believe in Jesus myself. That was the shock of my life, and that was really against the run of play. And of course, he got the shock of his life when I suddenly appeared saying, I want to become a disciple. I, I didn't have any of the Christian jargon. I never went to church. My family never went to church, not once, apart from my grandfather's funeral. Um, but um, So I didn't have any Christian jargon. I wasn't friends with any Christians, because why would I be? And um, anyway, my conversion really was darkness to light. It really was a complete outsider coming to the text of the Bible 
and through the word of God being converted to Christ. That was essentially what happened. But it was pretty, pretty dramatic as well. And, and from that moment, I started going to church straight away. And fortunately, uh, went to a good one that actually believed the Bible. Um, and because my conversion was so dramatic, um, I was told by church leaders that in some cases, people receive the infilling of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit at conversion. And that is what has happened to you, I was told. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't speak in tongues, but not everyone spoke in tongues. That's really not neither here nor there. The power of God has obviously descended on me, and that's the explanation. Because when I gave my life to Christ, I told them this, uh, such an intense feeling happened, which I wasn't expecting any feeling or experience at all. But when I kind of surrendered my life to Christ, I was filled with this light that just permeated the whole of my body and the whole of my being. And I hadn't expected anything like that. I just thought I was, you know, saying, okay, you are who you say you are and I will follow you. I didn't expect anything in addition to, to that. Oh, how wonderful is Christianity. You get so many additions that you hadn't expected. But anyway, and I was filled with this light that just permeated my whole being and actually made me tremble. And I kind of, it was with some carefulness that I had to go down the stairs after I'd been, you know, I'd, I'd said to the minister, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus or become a disciple or whatever phrase I used. And so also I had had a dream <clears throat> a couple of weeks before that moment, or maybe a week before, I don't know, in which I was being encouraged to follow Christ. And so the combination of that dream and that kind of experience of almost cleansing, which was a subjective experience, um, led the church leaders of a great charismatic church to say, oh, you received it at conversion. You were filled with the Spirit at the point of uh, conversion. Now, in my own mind, the experience of that cleansing moment and the dream um, weren't more significant than my careful study of the Gospel of John. Those things were all kind of shared elements in my kind of entry into, into the Christian life. It was only later on that I discovered that there was a controversy about those things, that somehow the work and the power of the Holy Spirit is on one side, and your intellectual apprehension of Christian teaching of the truths of Christianity is on the other side, and that they're kind of in competition or in opposition to one another. In my experience, that wasn't the case at all. Those elements were blended together in this kind of encountering God, which actually, from, an, from an, a non-believer's perspective, an atheist perspective, that's perfectly logical that there would be an element of, this, of the supernatural as well as an apprehension of the teaching, that those two things would go together. But it was only later in the Christian church that I realized there was this kind of, what, what I would say is a false dichotomy, a false pitching against each other. These aspects of my own conversion were not in opposition to each other. In fact, they reflected the Bible itself. 
If you really feel that the important thing is intellectual apprehension, that that's the most important thing, well, you're a little off balance. And if you feel that the most important thing is the power dynamic, you're also a little off balance because it's both. In the Bible, it's both. That's what I've been saying from the very beginning of this message. If you only focus on the intellect, apart from experience, there's an imbalance. And if you only focus on the power, apart from truth, there's an imbalance. And in the first few years of my Christian life, I would uh, deliberately enjoy both of these kind of aspects of our faith. Now, publishers also don't always help us because you don't often get books that, apart from the Bible itself, that where these things are all linked and serving each other, it's easier to publish a book that's just about the power, and it's easier to publish a book that's just a, a, a doctrinal statement of, you know, Christianity. And unfortunately, scholars have kind of separated in those ways as well. But I would just love it all, and I want to encourage you to imitate me in that respect. <laughs> Love it all. So I would get immersed reading about, in, in reading about revivals and the power of the Holy Spirit when great numbers came to Christ, the great awakening of the 18th century. I mean, just absolutely glorious. Even the Puritan movement of the 17th century, the Reformation of the 16th century, right up to the revivals that have been happening around the world. I would just dive in and there would be stories of healing and power and breakthroughs and demonic, you know, uh, 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 power coming and being shattered as Christianity moves into culture after culture after culture that have put their trust in other gods. And I'd love all of that stuff. I just, wow, this is Jesus being lifted up and glorified. And then I'd be read, reading whole commentaries by people like Calvin or F.F. Bruce or others. <clears throat> I didn't know that uh, commentaries were primarily used as reference books for preachers, a bit like encyclopedias or, you know. Uh, I, I, I just, I'd found the Bible, I found the Word of God, the truth. And so for me, to read a whole commentary through was like a joy. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful. And I read loads by Calvin. I mean, I haven't, the institutes, I've not really particularly, I haven't connected with actually, to be honest, it's boring. But his commentaries are phenomenal. Calvin's commentaries are brilliant. F.F. Bruce on Hebrews and on Acts and on Galatians. I mean, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. I didn't know that everyone wasn't doing that. Um, this is the way. So I was happy to live in those, both of those so-called separate worlds. They're not separate in the kingdom of God. It's one world, it's one God, one Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit. But from a publishing perspective, they're kind of like different camps. So I'm reading Francis Schaeffer and just loving it. We should read, you should rediscover Francis Schaeffer if you haven't discovered Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and others on the one side. And then in this other full stuck on me over here, Reinhard Bonker and John Wimber, loving it, what they were saying about the power of the Holy Spirit, incredible stuff. I was as happy as the day is long. So anyhow, after this dramatic conversion of mine, they told me, you've got it, you've got it at conversion, you've got the baptism of the Spirit at conversion, but I hadn't got it at conversion. They said I had it, but I didn't have it. And I know that I didn't have it 
when they said I'd had it because I got it later. And when I got it, then I knew I hadn't had it before because then I got it. And when I got it, I really got it. And when you have experienced power, being clothed with power from on high, I mean, even the phrase suggests that you would be conscious that that was happening to you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It wasn't just like, have we waited long enough? Let's just believe we've got it then. It wasn't that. Stay until. Stay until you've received power. You've been clothed with power. And that just changed everything. When I was eventually, and it was only a month or maybe two later, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, it, it changed everything. It didn't replace the conversion experience. This is another one of these things that there's this false dichotomy. It didn't replace the power of conversion. It enhanced it. It, it kind of it propelled you forward like a car getting petrol put into it, you know? So I was at a conference. Terry Virgo was preaching, and he'd been preaching about the cross brilliantly. And then we stood to sing a final song after the, the, the preach. And how it happened, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. No one prayed for me, but I was on the floor, and I was sobbing, and I was encountering God. And I don't know the transition from, it wasn't one of those things where someone, I'm not rubbishing it, but where someone come, came up and just like, banged me on the head and I went flying. Uh, and then they placed a blanket over my legs. It wasn't like, it wasn't like that at all. I mean, I'm not against that. I mean, it's whatever. But it, I, I, was, I was on the floor sobbing because the infilling of the Spirit is an intervention of God that is so personal and particular to you that it transforms you from within. It's not like going through a process and ticking off that I've done that. In that sense, it's different from baptism in water. You can be baptized in water, which is obviously something you would be conscious of doing as well, uh, and you would know, I've now been baptized in water. I believed in Christ. I've been baptized in water. I know. How do you know? Well, I'm dripping wet. The evidence is there. I know that I've been baptized in water. Well, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, it can create an unspeakable joy. It's like a foretaste of heavenly glory. When they, when they came back from the promised land, do you remember Joshua and Caleb? They said, we can do this. The other guys are like, oh, we definitely can't do this. And they came back, and they had this massive cluster of grapes. Everyone who ate one of those was eating a foretaste of what was in the promised land. The, the experience of the Holy Spirit is like a foretaste of glory. It's actually a seal from God that guarantees your eternal inheritance in Christ. And if, you had, if, if a document was sealed, you knew it was sealed. That, that seal told you who it was from, who's authorized it, who's certified it. It's like a seal. Anyway, um, for me, <clears throat> in that moment, it was as though a kind of expanse had opened up. It wasn't a vision, but it was not dissimilar in the sense that, for me, it was the immensity of God. It was, it was like... Um, you know, 
I knew I was dealing with God, but I am encountering God in his immensity, the massive, huge. It, it wasn't only holiness. Holiness was in it, but it was the immensity of God that I experienced. And I, I would guess that it would be different for each one. But boy, oh boy, uh, I never felt out of control. I could hear people around me, someone rather stupidly saying, what's wrong with legs? Did you say something to him? What's, you know, it's like, and I, I, I'm just like, don't just leave me alone. Just don't interrupt me. I wasn't really conscious. Of it. I just, because I'm encountering God. Have you had that, something like that? It's a wonderful thing. Um, two things, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> two things changed immediately and a further three things happened soon after. The immediate changes were these. First of all, the growing pride that I had in being like a true blue non-Christian born again out of the world and brought into the church. There was a kind of, as I realized after a few weeks that actually most of the people in the church had actually been raised within the church through their lives, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, I would much rather have not had those <laughs> from about the age of 14 to 20. It would have been much better if I'd been converted when I was 14 because of the amount of sin. But nevertheless, there was a kind of a, a, a creeping sense of pride that I was a true blue, you know, outside. I understood how non-Christians thought and all of that. Um, that just died that day. It absolutely died. Any sense of pride that I was a sinner, you know, no, you know, whatever. Because we're dealing with God. We're dealing with God. So that died. The second thing was that I began to speak in tongues the day following. So, and I, I know uh, it's not always the way, but uh, for me, it was just like a couple of syllables the following day. And then I thought, well, if all I've got is, is a couple of syllables, I'm going with that. And then before long, I was speaking in a full tongue. The three changes that I noticed that flowed out from that experience were these. First of all, a voracious appetite for understanding God's word. I mean, which I've already described to you. I started reading these commentaries and I was just like, I've discovered the word. I was became addicted to the Bible because it was so rewarding to be reading the whole Bible through and just I was just out of it on the Bible. Secondly, an almost fanatical commitment to evangelism. You know, that was another change that came out of this. Now, I, I was aware of needing to share my faith before, but I would go down to the Christian bookshop, and the, in those days, they don't do it now. Alas, they would sell these little tracts, these little leaflets, and I would just buy a load of them, and then I would go to the church building. I knew they had a stamp you know, that would, an, an inking, you know, stamp where it would give the details of where the church met. So I went in and they were a little bit, the, the woman who answered the intercom was offish with me, like I was disturbing her day. And so she let me in though, finally. So I, I said, look, I know you've got one of these stamp things. So I've seen it on something. I've bought these. Can I stamp these tracts? And she said, yeah, yeah, it's in the cupboard down there. I went to the cupboard, and then at the point of me rummaging around in this, this stationary cupboard, one of the elders, one of the young elders walked past, and he said, uh, can I help you? 
And I, and I thought, oh no, it looks like I'm stealing something. <laughs> so I, I kind of gave my explanation for what I was doing. And he said, oh yeah, fine, okay, great, you can sit there. The whole experience was like, was negative. So when I went back to the, when I gave all these out, I went back to the bookshop. I bought, I think I bought a thousand, if I remember rightly. And I wrote it all out by hand, every single tract. Come to Clarendon Church, 21 to 23, Clarendon Villas, Hove, even put the postcode, I think, BN33RE, Sunday, 10.30 a.m. or whatever. I mean, I wrote every single until my, the pain barrier. It was like that verse, when I read that verse about um, the sword freezing in that guy's hand, you know, it was, it was like that. My hand was, I went through the pain barrier. And I didn't have the, in those days, I was young, so I didn't say, look, I'm advertising the organization. You should be, you know, but I was committed to it. I, I was at a, um, in Brighton, there was a free festival that was on in, uh, down at the Old Steen. And there was a couple of tents, you know, where they would do concerts with stages. And I walked into the beer tent. They were, they were selling the beers at one end. There's a stage at another. And suddenly this non-Christian mate of mine turned up and said, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine, blah, 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 And we used to play guitars together for hours and hours, and we used to play through the night, you know, at different parties across the town. And uh, he said, listen, why don't I get a couple of guitars and we can just have a jam? And I thought, uh, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. Anyway, f two minutes later, yeah, the sound guy says, we're on. And I'm like, oh, okay. Let's do this then. So I get the one guitar, he gets the other guitar. He does the chicken thing, which he sits at the back cross-legged, playing lead. So everything is on me. I'm at the front. There's like three people who've got a beer and are wandering up to see what this is. And I'm trying to sing something or play something. We're just kind of playing along. Suddenly, this happens in England all the time in the summer. If you've ever been there, you'll know this there was a sound, and it was the sound of softly falling rain. The rain came down. Within a few minutes, that tent was packed side to side, front to back. It was absolutely packed with people. And suddenly, I, have you ever tried to make John 3.16 rhyme? It's, it's not easy. So I'm singing John 3.16. I'm trying to preach the gospel as I'm kind of singing in a slightly wasted, Dylan-y, Lou Reedy kind of voice. And uh, I'm just sharing the gospel. And then the sound guy did that after about five minutes. And literally, the rain stopped at that point. People dispersed. A few friends of mine had said, hey, what's he doing? We're throwing uh, the, the little caps of bottles of beer at me and uh, in good humor and I just suddenly realized if we're willing to share the gospel God will open up opportunities for us it was an amazing moment so and then the third thing that happened was that people started getting healed I mean when I prayed for them that was the third thing so voracious appetite to read the word of God fanatical commitment to evangelism and people started getting healed. So the first instance I can remember, this may not have been the first healing, but the first instance that I can remember was in a, when, in a uh, do you call them life groups here? Yeah, so in those days it was called house group. I don't know whether there's any, I suppose it doesn't have to be a house, it could be a flat, flat group. That wouldn't really work, <laughs> would it? Anyway, then we called them cell groups. And it didn't always work, so the, the combo of a cell group and a house group is a hell group. 
<laughs> anyway, so I'm in this life group, and, and I, I, I feel strongly that there's someone there who's got a problem with their left ankle or whatever it is, or right. I can't remember if it was left or right. And it was like really like a problem, and I hadn't noticed anyone. But um, I said this to the leader, Paul Fay, and he shared it with the group. He said, is there anyone here who's got a problem with your, your right ankle? And no one responded. And he said again, look, uh, are you sure? Is there anyone, you, no one here has got a problem with their ankle? And uh, no one responded. And I thought, oh. And then he said, uh, actually, the reason why, what, do you remember his wife's name? I can't remember his wife's name. The reason why my wife isn't here is because she's upstairs because she badly damaged her ankle and she can't walk on it. And she's on all this pain medication and all that. And I thought, wow. And he said, do you want to come and pray for her? I said, fine. So we went up, we prayed for her, and we came back down again. Well, a couple of days later, I heard the story that she got up, hobbled, and I don't recommend that anyone does this after they've been prayed for, but hobbled over to the loo, threw all the medication into the toilet, which isn't a good idea, and hobbled back and was totally healed completely healed. And I thought, wow, that is incredible. When we pray for someone, by the way, and whether they feel healed or not, you go, to your, you go back to the doctor who prescribed whatever it is you're on before you stop taking it. You know, it's just like Jesus said, go to the priests and show yourselves to the priests, he said to the lepers who'd been healed. So that's the normal process. But that was an amazing thing. I'd been clothed with power from on high and it changed things. It changed things. R.T. Kendall was probably the first one who talked about the Word and the Spirit working together in the churches. Well, I mean, after the Bible, anyway. Someone just lean on the, on the switch. <laughs> or maybe that's the cue. Time to stop now. <laughs> you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you shall be my witnesses. So there is a power and there is a boldness to be a witness. It's a dominant feature in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that those who received power and authority from Christ were then bold. And yet it is not a dominant feature in our lives. They followed Christ. They were authorized by Christ. They received power from Christ and boldly declaring Christ to those around them is a dominant feature of the book of Acts, and yet it is not a dominant feature in our lives. And the answer to that isn't to become one of those really annoying people who pull earphones out of people on buses and say, let me have a conversation with you about God. It's not that. We need to be bold in sharing our faith. And it's all just words, and it's all just methodology until the power of the Holy Spirit fills you and releases you and carries you over the obstacles of embarrassment or I don't know the answer to that. Or How do you get better in apologetics? Get to know the Bible. Read it, read it, read it, read it. Every answer you need for every heresy is in the Bible. It's already there. And God will give you wisdom as you share. This is something that you learn on the job. Now, sure, you can read a book about apologetics and answers to different objections. Fine. But how you really will get good at sharing your faith with others 
is by getting into the Bible and sharing your faith with people so that you are interacting with real people about real questions that they have. That combination will lead to people coming to Christ. Let me finish with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He's, um, he's speaking to uh, prospective preachers and to seasoned pastors. And uh, this is classic Spurgeon. Go forward in actual work. After all, we shall be known by what we have done more than by what we have said. Like the apostles, I hope our memorial will be our acts. That's an excellent insight. It's, it's not just called the teachings of the apostles. It's called the acts of the apostles. The book of acts, things that they did. Isn't that great? This is a time for working in the power of the Holy Ghost. Be not so taken up with speculations so that you prefer a Bible reading in Revelation to teaching in a ragged school or the ministries that you've got going or discoursing to the poor concerning Jesus. We must be done with daydreams and get to work. I believe in eggs, but we must get chickens out of them. I don't mind how big your egg is. It may be an ostrich's egg if you like, but if there's none, nothing in it, pray, clear away the shell. We want facts, deeds done, souls saved. It's all very well to write essays, but what souls have you been the means of saving from going down to hell? So I appeal to you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you might be bold, that you might declare Christ to your generation, in your context, wherever God has set you, and outside of it as well. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you will have a confidence in God's ability to take his word and change someone's life. You don't start in evangelism by saying, that person doesn't look like they'll receive it. And that's like, that's, we are sent to raise the dead. You don't say, oh, he's dead. I won't bother with that one. Oh, he's definitely dead. I'm not going to bother with that one. We are sent to raise the dead by the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in Christ, but he made you alive together with him. And so on Wednesday night, and as you're fasting now, this is a time to say, God, I want an experience of you. I need an experience of you that is more than I've already had. Because there's a whole generation around us some of them locked up in powerless religion that are just drifting into eternity without Christ. And what we're doing is too small. What we're doing needs to, be, needs to have the fire of God come down. Let God be God. The God who answers by fire. Let him be God. Amen? Should we stand together and pray? So this is an introduction. This is kind of a foundation, looking primarily at experience, rather than I'm not laying a doctrinal foundation, although there's obviously there was doctrine in that. Father, we ask you to come and open our hearts to believe the things that we've heard. We say to you, God, that if, if all of this is dependent on us, we are sunk. But we say to you, God, 
pour out your spirit upon us. Pour your spirit upon us, Lord. As we move into three days of denying ourselves food, what we're saying is we desire you more. Some of you have already decided you're not going to fast. I want to appeal to you to reconsider and to say, I am setting this aside so that I might feast on God. I'm saying to God, the conversion of my generation is more important than food for these few days. It's not 40, it's not 21, it's not even seven, just three days. Lord, I pray that as we make ourselves vulnerable to you, that you would fill us afresh. And I pray when we come on Wednesday, you would pour out your spirit to us.